0: There is growing concern about sections of Hawke's Bay and Tairawhiti with communications almost completely wiped out by this storm. Wairoa in particular is a black hole with cell phones, landlines and internet all down. Cut off by road and phone, its residents are desperate to contact their loved ones. Damage from heavy rain, flooding and high winds have toppled power lines, have cut fibre optic cables and shut down cell phone towers. Kia ora, I'm Tom Kitchen, and today on The Detail, landlines out, cell coverage gone, internet non-existent.
1: Our community are really, really doing it tough, not being able to communicate, letting their whānau know they're okay. People are struggling, but
2: you you can't get hold of them at the moment because all our communications are down.
0: Why did Sitephone Gabrielle cause a communications blackout? And how do we prevent a repeat when the next big natural disaster strikes? Ulrich Spiedel is a senior computer science lecturer at Auckland University. He's worked in data communications for most of his career. He explains how our communication networks are actually put together and why they're so
1: vulnerable. These days, mostly this is uh, done via fiber optic cables and uh, they're made of uh, glass or plastic um, and then they're sort of being, you know, put into a protective, uh, you know, layer of more plastic and then, uh, you know, typically run through a conduit or something like this. Um, But they're not overly robust. So they're typically only a few centimeters, uh, you know, in diameter at most uh, when when they're being laid, you know, into something like a road um, or um, when they're being uh, uh, strung along poles. And so, obviously, um, uh, you know, if you've got a situation where a a hillside comes down and takes this out, then it, uh, you know, takes those cables out with it.
2: Well, Gisborne and Tairawhiti residents woke up cut off from the rest of the country, both in terms of road access and phone reception.
0: Satellite phone was the only way to contact the region. In Cyclone Gabrielle, it was destroyed, or a large part of it was. What happened in Cyclone yeah. Gabriel? So in,
1: in, in Cyclone Gabrielle, really two different things happened. Uh, so, um, firstly... Um, obviously for cell sites in particular to operate, but also for roadside cabinets, you actually need power. And the way that this is normally organized is uh, that a cell site or a roadside cabinet uh, will have an uninterruptible power supply in it, which is basically designed that if the mains power to the site goes down, um, that um, the um, uh, uninterruptible power supply will keep it going for anything between a few hours to maybe a couple of days. Um, But not usually much more than that, because the idea is that... uh, if it's a power outage, you know your typical suburban power outage uh, during normal times will not normally last more than a, than a few hours. So uh, you call your lines company, like you know Vector in Auckland, for example, and they'll send a team out and typically they have it fixed within a few hours. Um, so those sites they're basically designed to deal with power outages of that sort of length. But um, when you're having a cyclone and you have widespread power outages,
2: flooding inundated a major substation, cutting power to thousands of homes and cutting down the mobile network.
1: Because there's lots of slips and uh, lots of flooding um, that's sort of, you know, taking bridges out. This is
2: the Waikiri River, and this is the Waikiri Bridge.
1: Both your power cables go and also the cables that actually supply those cell phone sites uh, with the phone and internet signals uh, uh, that they need. Um, they, they also disappear. And then also, in, in order to add insult to injury, they also become inaccessible physically because your roads are blocked. On the East Coast, 59 local roads are closed in the Gisborne region and 17 bridges are either broken or washed away. So a lot of work to do there. And that's especially a case if you're in rural areas and uh, your cell phone site sits up on a hill so it can... Reach the largest number of possible customers in an area where there aren't a lot of customers. And then uh, you immediately, uh, you know, end up with a problem. Uh, you don't have power there. You don't have signal there, and your cell site goes goes down. In rural areas, a lot of the cell sites are operated um, by a crowd called uh, RCG, the Rural Con- uh, uh, Connectivity Group, and they are literally jointly owned by all the three big telecommunications companies: Spark, uh, Vodafone, and Two Degrees, and they all operate from the the same RCG sites. In the area. So if that RC, uh, RCG site uh, loses, uh, loses its connectivity or loses its power, then all of the three networks go off air.
0: Well, what happens when? these kind of sites go down, cell phone reception, internet, we often think, you know, oh, I just can't call my mate down the road. But it's actually a lot more than that. It actually impacts a lot that we don't think about, eh? Yeah,
1: it, it's a lot more than that. So if, uh, so, the, so, the first thing that goes down, of course, everything goes down at that point. But also what's insidious is that it may, not, it, may, it may not go down immediately. So for example, if only the power is affected, but the backhaul uh, fiber link is still in place, um, and it's functioning, then um, basically the batteries are going to start taking over and they might last you a day or two. Battery packs, what, they last about eight hours or so? Uh, About about 48 hours. And so you think, oh, we've survived the disaster, the cell phone networks uh, uh, survived the disaster and then a day later, all of a sudden the cell cell side dies and you don't know as an end user why this has happened and why you no longer can can get cell phone reception and that's simply because the batteries run out.
0: We have had to write everybody down on the books because obviously no one has cash, we had no communication with... um, anything with FPOS or Starlink or anything like
1: that. So the cell phones, for example, they supply things like FPOS machines. Um, they supply cash registers, you know, similarly with, you know, the wired uh, fiber internet that we have. So if those trunk lines go down or if the power goes down, we're losing things like FPOS, we're losing things like fuel carts. And fuel carts, for example, are something that the emergency services use. I mean, you know, when the police go or the fire brigades uh, go down to the uh, petrol station to fill up, um, they don't use cash. <laughs> um, they use a, use a fuel cart and that stops working. But it goes further, of course. It means people can't buy food. There's only two supermarkets here in Napier that appear to be open. They're both pack and saves. People are queuing for around two hours at times to get some basics. And they can't reorder anything either because their stock system doesn't work. um, Because, again, that's that's usually reliant um, on some sort of internet connection. And so it just piles up.
2: One of the challenges is that a number of those cell phone towers will be operating on batteries at the moment, they are designed to operate on batteries for temporary power outages. some of those batteries will be getting pretty
0: low. Uh, Do they not like think about this kind of you know serious disasters happening like this, is it
1: just was it just out of their mind? Um, It was probably just not on their radar. And this is actually quite concerning because it should have been on their radar, you know, even uh, if not as a cyclone. Um, I mean, the Hikorangi subduction zone is right uh, off that area and it runs along the entire coast there. And uh, we know quite well that it's capable of generating earthquakes up to magnitude nine, which is sort of comparable to what happened in Japan in 2011. It was the largest
0: quake ever known in Japan and one of the five largest recorded in the world. More than 28,000 people are confirmed dead
1: or missing. This is something that really the authorities should have been prepared for and they they should have started asking the right questions a lot earlier.
0: We'll come back to Odishk later in the podcast, but now let's take a closer look at the issue of Preparedness Richard Mole is a PhD student who's researching infrastructure planning for emergencies.
2: The larger scale events would be more, more my, my focus. So for uh, example? For example, uh, one bit of work that I'm well aware of was the impacts of a Wellington fault rupture, which would have very big impacts.
0: Well, the shaky isles just got shakier. GNS has revised its hazards model and is now forecasting the amount of shaking in an earthquake is going to be 50% greater than previously thought in large parts of the country.
2: It's that kind of event that I, I look more at, that the ones which have disruptions of perhaps a week or month's worth of outages on the infrastructure networks.
0: So with Cyclone Gabriel, well, you know, where would that be on in terms of serious events you would look at.
2: Oh that would be getting that would be getting into this kind of zone particularly for those in the Hawke's Bay. Absolutely. What the the events of cyclone Gabriel have demonstrated to us that some of these concepts that actually we've been kind of aware of for a while such as isolation of communities of power outages of telecommunications outages are are very real they can impact large communities
0: there are still communities across Tidafiti and Hawke's Bay which remain isolated and are relying on helicopters for vital supplies
2: so yes it's uh while cyclone gabriel has been on the uh, uh, This sounds bad but on the kind of the lower end of the of the spectrum of the scales of disasters that I, I would be looking at uh, it certainly does register absolutely it registers and it's um uh, and it it demonstrates a number of those points around outages. So with all the problems that happened, do you feel like New Zealand was prepared? I think that we're pretty well prepared for the smaller bumps and knocks and and blips that happen on our networks. I think that uh, when you get to those larger events, we have a bit of a spectrum here. Some people are very well prepared and, and knowledgeable and have, have got all the stuff in place. But uh, that's not the case for a large proportion of the population. I think that w- we have more work to do in, at, at the, uh, the public level. And also, I think at the utilities level, there are, th- there are things that we can do in planning and in resilience infrastructure investment that we can do to improve our resilience. Why are we behind? The question, are we behind, is an interesting one. A lot of our infrastructure was built at times before we had a good knowledge of necessarily what the impacts of some of the hazards could be. Uh, For example, the Hikarangi subduction zone. We've learnt a lot about that in the last few years.
0: The Hikarangi subduction zone is New Zealand's biggest plate boundary fault and probably its largest source of earthquakes and tsunami.
2: And I think it's as we learn more about the hazards... And as some of the hazards become more evident to us, climate change, uh, we're now able to understand what it is that we, we are faced with in terms of hazards and therefore what it is that uh, we're, we're actually dealing with. Uh, again, the impacts of, of Gabriel have demonstrated that some of these outages can be lengthy following a rupture of the Wellington Fault. Networked power might be unavailable for three to six months So we we would be looking there at some really lengthy outages.
0: Okay, so let's just talk about communication in terms of internet and phone lines. Uh, What was your reaction when you heard that we were out in Hawke's Bay, Gisborne area for quite a while?
2: So I think of the telecommunications network as being almost labyrinthine in its complexity in some ways, the the mobile phone landline type uh, telecommunications network. There are a number of players or, or uh, operators in the market, and also our networks are quite complex in their uh, in their makeup. So can you tell us a bit about um, you know cell phone networks and why they're so complicated? Uh, sure. Uh, I'll, I'll give an example. Uh, let's say that uh, Richard phones Tom on uh, on uh, from mobile to mobile, and uh, Richard's on Spark and Tom's on two degrees. There's an example. Right, so Richard dials Tom's number and uh, because I'm on Spark, my phone talks to the nearest Spark cell phone tower. The cell phone tower, almost certainly, it might talk to the exchange through a microwave dish or it most likely it talks to the exchange through a fibre optic cable, which most likely is owned by Chorus. The telephone exchange is most likely owned by Chorus and that sees that there's a phone call from Richard and Richard's on Spark. It diverts the call to the nearest service platform, I believe it's called, uh, which works out, oh, this is, a, this is Richard's call. He's on our network. I'm going to log this call. And then it passes again through a series of fiber optic cables or microwave dishes or whatever method through to the two degrees platform and then through to the two degrees cell phone tower. And then it connects to Tom's telephone fantastic so in making that one phone call we have used the assets of at least spark almost certainly chorus certainly two degrees and very possibly other telecommunications providers who are providing the fiber optic and tele- telecommunications between exchanges and key nodes so what we have there is uh, for you and i for, for for tom and richard this is this is a simple thing i've made a phone call but what's going on in the background is a is a quite a complex system, both in terms of network, in how it's all configured, and also in terms of organisations. There's a number of organisations, utili- uh, infrastructure, that we are depending on to provide this telephone call. The networks do have in places some great redundancy in terms of dealing with short-term power outages and uh, short-term, uh, perhaps, network outages. However, what we're perhaps not so well prepared for is the longer-term outages uh, of beyond, let's say, 12 hours plus.
0: Old-fashioned transistor radios have been
2: flying off the shelves in the wake of Cyclone Gabriel.
0: But there was one form of communication that kept working, the radio.
2: The power of radio in the, in the public communications sphere. For example... If our mobile phone network or our telecommunications network uh, fails for, for a period, radio is a great way to get messaging out to explain why there is an outage uh how long the outage might be some key messages of uh for people to be aware of radio is a medium in new zealand which we which we use a lot uh according to a google source i i searched this morning 70% of new zealanders use radio regularly and that 70% on average is using radio for 9 hours uh, a week that's a lot of radio usage there are also a lot of radio devices out there which means that we can receive those outputs radios in cars, uh, handheld radios, whatever it is, uh, radio is actually a great way to get information out. And also, the radio network is, in general terms, relatively robust. Uh, the infrastructure is relatively robust. The infrastructure system for radio, there's, uh, it's not as complex as the telecommunication system, and some of the radio assets, uh, broadcast assets, are really robust.
0: And there's something else we've become more familiar with. Starlink, that's something that's been talked about quite a bit Ngāti Porou iwi members from around New Zealand and the world have come together to deliver urgently required communications equipment in the remote East Cape The iwi's commercial arm Ngāti Porou Holdings in collaboration with other iwi and private enterprises has chartered a plane loaded with Starlink satellite kits What is that and
1: has it worked? Um, yes, it has worked. So what it is, it's a so-called low-Earth orbit satellite system, and this is a new thing. So, in fact, Starlink is the first low-Earth orbit network that's actually uh, been put into commission.
2: You may have laid witness to some bright strings of light shooting across the night sky recently. Shooting stars? Orchestrated drones? UFOs, perhaps? While any of those things would be equally as exciting, chances are what you were really seeing was Starlink.
1: At Starlink, uh, their satellites are about 550 kilometers just above the Earth's surface, and uh, they're anywhere between, at the moment, with the current constellation, about 53 degrees uh, south and 53 degrees north. And there's about 3,000 of them, so there's always one sort of, you know, floating uh, around above you. And if um, you're lucky enough to live in an area like uh, most most of New Zealand is, um, uh, where you live in an area where you can see one of those satellites, and one of Starlink's ground-based teleport gateways can actually see that. that then the satellite can connect you to the teleport, which can connect you to the Internet.
2: A satellite Internet constellation, or mega-constellation as it's also known, is a network of satellites that work together in unison to bring us Internet access. The firm is working towards building a network of 12,000 satellites to provide high-quality, affordable Internet to essentially the entire planet.
1: A kit for Starlink is literally something that comes in a you know box that people you know can carry you know quite happily. You know we've transplanted uh, our unit that we've got for our university lab, we transplanted that into a nice little roller suitcase so we can actually take it out into the field for experiments and stuff like that. And it takes about five minutes to set up, and it's not something that's particularly difficult to set up. So you know even a layperson, if you can set up your own Wi-Fi access point at home, uh, your own Wi-Fi router, then uh, Starlink is not a particular technological. Hurt for you, and it literally comes with a Wi-Fi router in the box. Uh, You plug that thing into the power, you plug the Starlink antenna, which looks like a sort of, you know, funny, tilted, small, modernist coffee table. You plug that into the router, and uh, you turn it on, and then you set a password uh, through an app, and then that's all you really need to do.
0: How can we be prepared? What, what are our options for being more resilient?
1: Well, I, I think there's there's two answers to this. Firstly, uh, I think the local communities uh, need to ask those questions, you know, when uh, networks are being rolled out into the areas, you know, how does this add to resilience and how are you going to keep this working through things like cyclones, through things like earthquakes, through things like tsunamis. Also, uh, there's an engineering response to it, so you can make the sites themselves more resilient. For example, on the power side of things, you could run sites um, uh, with uh, solar and with Uh, With wind, in which case they wouldn't, you know, need any mains connection at all. Of course, it costs a little bit extra uh, in order to do this. And um, then you could, for example, also put an alternative backhaul link. So you could make sure um, that uh, if there's a cable running up, then there's either uh, a second cable running along a a completely different route um, or that there's a microwave link. In some cases people also say okay let's put a generator in for backup power but um, that is really only sensible if you're able to plan uh, the periods uh, when it's uh, not going to be accessible and this is for something for example that Cordia does um, uh, at a lot of their hillsides because some of them are above the snow line and they're actually not accessible for, uh, for part of the year and uh, so they literally have diesel generators there that uh, are designed to keep them going literally for months on end. Yeah but generators can be stolen The theft of generators in Gisborne and Hawks Bay is being blamed for the delay in restoring cell phone coverage. Not if they're in a building and and bolted down but of course if you're doing this emergency supply then what you actually have to do is you have to fly in with a helicopter you have to fly in um, those uh, those generators because very often the access roads are damaged and they aren't usable and then to make matters worse every few days you have to send another helicopter up there uh, with a few jerrycans of fuel in order to refuel them and you're doing all this in the middle of a disaster where uh, basically uh, you're uh, needing helicopters left right and centre for search and rescue for relief missions, uh, for flying people uh, out uh, of places uh, where they can't stay and literally for plucking people off rooftops. And you don't really want to have to go around and uh, you know fly fuel around the landscape.
0: <laughs> Richard Moll says we can make our communication networks more resilient.
1: That can be provided,
2: frankly, if there is demand for it. Do we want to pay more for our mobile phone bills and our telecommunications bills? to provide more redundancy in our network uh, so that we are less likely to see either the lengths of outages or the uh, uh, regularity of outages that we might otherwise see, for example, through Gabriel.
0: Why why would it cost more? You talked about it costing Uh, a little bit more. uh,
2: So in order to provide the redundancy, that that could mean providing more generators or more fuel supply at those generators, or it might mean providing more fibre-optic routes or telecommunications routes. To provide that, that redundancy, those alternative routes of uh, of passing the telecommunication signals
0: yeah so so what about say something like solar or wind powered networks? Would that be something that we could look into instead of having all, all these kind of cables
2: absolutely yes, yes they 're very viable, yes, uh, particularly at the household level, if you can afford it, uh, a solar or wind power system with batteries and the uh, appropriate wiring. Uh, which allows for continued use in a power outage. Yeah, absolutely, if, if we invest in those both at the household level and at the infrastructure level. Yes, those those sorts of solutions can make a real uh, improvement in our redundancy and in our resilience, yes. But,
0: but can most people afford to have those solar or wind networks at their home, especially in a time of an emergency?
2: Well, that's, you know, I mean, <laughs> that's a good point. You've... If you're thinking of that kind of solution, you have to think of it before the event, and those solutions are expensive. So uh, that is one way that you can provide a redundancy at household level. If you go beyond that, then the solutions get pretty ragged pretty quickly. Uh, going to a friend's or neighbour's house that has power, or going to the community emergency hub the Civil Defence Centre where there might be power. Or, frankly, we can start thinking about what are what our plans would be in an actual response would we uh, would we prefer to stay in our house and camp out i've heard that, that term camp out in our own house uh, without power or would we prefer to uh, go off and visit uncle jim in hamilton for a week or two uh, there's a number of ways of uh, of dealing with the power outages none of which actually sound all that exciting frankly but we have to be prepared and, and mindful that these power outages can happen
0: That's it for today. I'm Tom Kitchen. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders. Our producers are Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Oleks Speidel and Richard Moll. Ka kite anō.